0: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Known for his work in the courtroom and the classroom, Harvard Law School's Charles J. Ogletree Jr. is being memorialized by the many he mentored, including former President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. One of his students, civil rights attorney Areva Martin, was inspired by his work to restore the justice historically denied to so many including the victims of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. Martin, who moderated a panel of African-American Harvard Law alumni on Ogletree's Martha's Vineyard property, represents more than 700 survivors and descendants of Palm Springs Section 14 in their quest for reparations after their community was racially targeted, burned out, and bulldozed by the city of Palm Springs in the 1950s and 60s. Author, activist, attorney, and media personality, Ariva Martin joins Equal Time to continue a conversation some Americans would rather avoid. What lessons did she learn from Ogletree's work? And why is resolving America's unpaid debt to many of its citizens necessary before the country can move forward? Welcome to Equal Time, Ariva Martin. Thank you. So tell us about the memorial for Tree, Charles Ogletree. What did you choose to remember about this icon and this teacher? Which I'm happy to say, when I was an even fellow, I took his class also.
1: Wow. That's amazing. What is most significant to me about Charles Ogletree's legacy is his willingness to mentor his students. Uh particularly in this era of what I'll call celebrity professors, where a lot of professors, because of their books or their lectures or their research, they grow huge platforms. They are able to command huge speaking fees and they're often uh, you know, lauded for their work. Many of those, what I'll call celebrity professors, don't have the kind of connection to their students that Charles Ogletree, and clearly Charles Ogletree would fall into that category of celebrity professor, I think even before it was popular or even identified. But despite his celebrity status, he gave back so much to his students and made the mentoring of his students a priority. And the fruits of his labor are paying off today I was on a call with DeMario Solomon Simmons. DeMario is a civil rights lawyer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He worked as an intern with Charles Ogletree, Professor Ogletree, back in early 2000s when Professor Ogletree and Johnny Cochran went into Tulsa and filed the first reparations lawsuit for the Tulsa massacre survivors. Uh, That lawsuit went all the way to the Supreme Court. They weren't successful eventually but fast forward to today demario is now the lead attorney uh, for those survivors in tulsa in a lawsuit uh, pursuing a different legal strategy but yet carrying on the work of professor ogletree and myself, I'm involved in a reparations case in Parks, oh, well,
0: California. Let's 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 unpack that because you obviously he had many famous clients from Anita Hill to Tupac and he taught the former president and first lady Barack and Michelle Obama. But it was his work on seeking reparations for survivors of the Tulsa race massacre of nineteen twenty one that was a particular inspiration for you. So tell us how you became involved in this case in Palm Springs that many of our listeners may not be familiar with.
1: Yes. So briefly, Section 14 is a 646-mile stretch of land in downtown Palm Springs. And in the 50s and 60s, African-Americans migrating from the South moved into this community because Palm Springs was looking for laborers. It was trying to build up its a city as a desert uh, tourist location. And they needed laborers to do that, to build country clubs, restaurants, bars, et cetera. And black folks were trying to escape the Jim Crowism of the South. So they wanted opportunities. So there was a perfect match here, workers looking for work and a city looking for laborers. And unfortunately, Palm Springs was like so many other parts of our country during the fifties and sixties, And they had very restrictive racially uh, discriminatory policies. So Black folks couldn't live in neighborhoods where whites lived in Palm Springs. And the only community where they could live was on this stretch of land that was owned by the Aquacaliente uh, tribe, indigenous tribe. And so Black folks built their homes there. They built a community, a thriving community. And they then went about the business of building up Palm Springs to become this very uh, sought after, exotic desert location for tourists all around the country, particularly snowbirds. And after the city got what it wanted out of these laborers, i.e. the building up of its city, it decided that it wasn't a good idea to have black and brown folks in the heart of its downtown, didn't fit the image that they wanted to portray to tourists. So they went about the business of removing them. They didn't use a legal process. They didn't go into courts. They actually uh, went door to door in some cases, and in some cases, they didn't even do that. But they gave notice, uh, informal notice to residents that they had to leave because they were going to clear the space. And they did that. They burned down the houses and used bulldozers to clear the homes and destroy this otherwise vibrant black and brown community. And that happened 60 years ago. Wow.
0: Did they give them any money or compensation or anything?
1: Zero. They gave them nothing. They targeted them racially because they were black and brown and they had very little power. And they gave them nothing. The attorney general for the state of California came in and did an investigation and took them to task for the very thing you just said. Wrote a scathing report uh, indicting the city for racially targeting this community and for burning them out of their homes without paying them, without compensating them, without relocating them, without doing anything to address the, uh, you know, the hardship that they enacted on these. There was over 2,000 families at the time. And at the height of this community, there were over 5,000 people who lived here. There were, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of homes in this 646 uh, square mile, 646 acres in this one square mile. And so I learned about this as Bruce's Beach, another uh, case of reparations that was happening in Los Angeles. Uh, At the conclusion of Bruce's Beach, there was still a lot of activity around reparations and people were looking at how Black folks have been dispossessed all over this country and particularly in the state of California. And I was introduced to the individuals in Palm Springs who were fighting to get the city to acknowledge them. And I drew from the work that Charles Overtree, Professor Overtree did in Tulsa. That was my inspiration. I immediately went back and looked at the lawsuit that he filed and the decisions of the courts involved in those lawsuits and was encouraged by what he did at a time when it wasn't popular to do so. And that's how I became the lead attorney for now over a 1,000 residents in Palm Springs who are fighting for reparations, restitution, uh, an apology, an acknowledgement uh, of the atrocities that they and their ancestors experienced.
0: Can you give us a little bit of a timeline? So when did they move in? When did they get kicked out? And how long have you been on the case?
1: The majority of the black families started to move into Palm Springs in the late 40s and 50s. So this area, Section 14, I would say at its height of like five to six thousand individuals, was in the late 1950s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. The destruction, the burning out, the dispossession started in around uh late 1950s, 59, and continued through about 65. And so it was over a period of five plus years that this destruction occurred. I became the attorney, uh, lead attorney, approximately a year and a half ago. The fight for recognition for restitution for reparative justice began probably about six months or so before I got involved. So this has been a two year process of trying to get this city to recognize what harms he caused these families. And one thing that's very interesting about Palm Springs is said, there was this attorney general report in the sixties that laid the blame clearly at the uh, feet of city leaders. But as recently as 2021, the Palm Springs Human Rights Commission uh, did its own investigation of what happened to families uh, living on this uh, section 14 area and it too reached the same conclusion, that these families were racially targeted, that they were dispossessed, that they were burned out, that they were bulldozed out of their homes without any compensation or any justification, no yes. fault of their own. That's a, a phrase we hear often in reparations where families are targeted, individuals are targeted, and they are uh, you know, either, in, in the case of Tulsa, as you know, actually murdered uh, properties burned because of no fault of their own. And likewise in Palm Springs, these families did nothing. Uh, they were innocent victims of a city that wanted to commercialize and wanted to uh, make profit on its property, again, situated in the heart of its downtown community.
0: And yeah, this is so much forgotten or at least erased history at a time where people are saying you can't really erase our history. I mean, these families, many of them, their members are still alive today, I would think.
1: Absolutely. Think about if you are uh, 15 to 20 years old and even older uh, in the 1960s, I, you're alive. I have a lot, 350 of my 1,000 000- So clients are actually survivors, meaning Mm -hmm. that they were children, teenagers, and young adults living with family on Section 14. They have vivid memories of coming home, seeing their homes on fire. Uh, They have vivid memories of going to school and and feeling anxiety over, is my home going to be there when I return? Ah. Will my belongings be there? Might my parents or anyone that's in a home be burned to death by these fires? And I have a client, a young mother at the time, three kids. Her husband would was horrified to leave her with the kids at home out of fear that he would come home and his wife and his three children would be burned to death in their home, would be burned down. Uh she has vivid memories of her kids playing outside in the smoke, having to, you know grab them and, and run into their home and you know try to protect and shelter her children and story after story like that and
0: a lot of trauma here too oh my god uh, it's not just the physical buildings and the property it's so much trauma can you tell us what's going on right now what's happening with the case uh, have there been successes setbacks what's the state of the oh, case right we've
1: now had- All of the above (laughs) successes. There was an initial apology by the city council of Palm Springs about 18 months ago. Not much happened after that. Uh, We are negotiating, trying to negotiate an out of court settlement. We have uh, made some progress and that we've gotten uh, some indication from the city that they are interested and willing to settle out of court, but at the same time, we've not gotten any concrete settlement offer. So from a litigation standpoint, what we've done is I've brought on uh, three additional uh, legal teams, big law firms with lots of manpower, lots of resources uh, to be ready to mount a legal challenge. We have at the same time been working at the community level, trying to rebuild some of the community uh power, the political power that was decimated by this uh you know demolition of this community. So we've had several large activations in Palm Springs. We have one coming up on October 7th. And uh, this is where we just go into this community and we bring people together and we share stories. We have survivors tell their stories. And we give the community an opportunity to be seen and to be heard. Because before uh, this action started, this was a community that was dispersed because of the dispossession. It was a community that had been really uh, stripped of its community and political power. So part of what we have been doing in addition to fighting a legal battle is rebuilding, trying to restore for this community, a sense of community, and uh, rebuild for them uh, this power that was
0: lost. Ariva, I can hear your passion when you're talking about this. So I want to ask, why is this issue important to you? And what would you say to people who say, well, that was in the past? Why should people today and communities today care or pay for something that they had nothing to do with? I
1: am so glad you asked that question, Mary, because that question, uh, that comment that you just made is a frequent refrain that we hear or retort that we hear. And what I say to those people is you have to contextualize the statement and what we are doing. This country has a history of wanting to embrace and celebrate all that is good, and then reject and ignore all that is ugly about our country. So we celebrate founding our founding fathers, but we wanna ignore the reality that many of them were slave owners themselves. We wanna celebrate the American dream and the, the narrative of meritocracy, that this is a meritocracy, But yet we ignore the systemic biases and the policies, the racially charged policies that prevent African-Americans from achieving the American dream. The 10 to 1 wealth gap between black and white folks is not because black folks aren't industrious and hardworking and ambitious. It's, It's because of redlining and the racially restrictive housing policies that prevented black folks in Palm Springs from living next to their white folks, the banking policies that prevented black folks from getting loans at banks, the the policies today that prevent small black businesses from getting the same loans that their white counterparts have. So when you think about individuals, yes, it's easy to say I wasn't there and you weren't there, so why should I be responsible? But this is a country of institutions. So institutions are responsible. And we reap the benefits of the institutions that uh, were present. So the city of Palm Springs is an institution and people that live in Palm Springs today are reaping the benefits of that institution. The institution that built the golf courses and the tennis courts and paved the streets and provide the city services. The residents benefit from that institution. So that institution has an obligation to all of its citizens. That institution failed the black and brown citizens when it did not protect them, when it engaged in the kind of what we believe criminal conduct that it engaged in. So if you step away from looking at this as the individuals, yes, the slave owners, the masters, the plantation owners, they're dead. Our ancestors that were slaves are dead. Many of the people that built Palm Springs, many of them are dead, but the institutions that Supported that, embrace that, advance that, protected those systems are very much still alive and present in our communities. So it's not a it's not a hard thing when you think about reparations because we pay reparations in this country to many in individuals. Nine eleven for no fault of their own just being in a building. People lost their lives, their lives were destroyed. And the government, not because of a lawsuit, but the government because of a moral duty, because of a duty to protect the citizens of this country, to protect the residents of the state of New York, the city of Manhattan, the city of New York, paid and continues to pay millions of dollars. After the Oklahoma bombing, we saw those victims compensated we need only look to the japanese in 1988 who were compensated so this notion that we're not responsible or even some take it further and say black folks aren't deserving is only referenced in the context of black people and it's just evidence of more of you know white supremacy narrative anti-blackness that's so pervasive in our country nobody suggested that 9 11 victims should not be compensated. That's not even a conversation. In fact, it's sacrilegious even suggest that. So, yeah, why? You laid it you-
0: out very well. You really <laughs> did. And when people bring that up, I also remind them you know, for much of this country's history, Black people, Black families paid taxes to pay for schools they couldn't attend, pools they couldn't swim in, libraries they couldn't check a book out of. They still had to pay for them. And even in our own lifetimes, really. So
1: and we do and people don't look at it
0: that that way, you know. I mean, well, I live in a house here in in Charlotte, North Carolina that my parents couldn't have lived in because there were stricted covenants, and so they couldn't have gotten in the neighborhood when it was cheap <laughs> and get that wealth building. So it's all, as you say, it's 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 the systems. But you yeah, know, in cal- the notion the, of
1: Mary, the notion of collective action, and you know, is is embedded in our system. If you don't have children, you pay taxes to support public schools. Yeah, you don't get to opt out of that and say, well, "I don't have any kids." Yeah, <laughs> or my kids go to private school. But this notion that we as a society owe it to each other to support and provide for each other is very much embedded in our system. Until we get to yes. the notion of black people, and again, I give good. example after example of where this country without reservation, without That's trepidation, funny. pays for the trauma that victims have experienced, the physical harm, the, the
0: property damage.
1: Yeah. Uh, but when we talk about Black people, something seems to
0: change. You hmm, know? I wonder what it is. You yeah, encounter- dynamics <laughs> are often
1: different. The conversation yeah. is different. We start talking about who's old, what and who shot yeah. John and who was around and who wasn't around. Yeah. Don't hear that.
0: In California, Reaver, you are having the conversation. We've heard about that. You mentioned the issue of Bruce's Beach and Manhattan Beach being returned to the descendants of the owners who were not fairly compensated. And then you have the law that some folks have called controversial that's talked about payments, direct payments to black citizens. What are your feelings about these policies? Is it justice? And is California ahead of the game?
1: California is definitely leading on the issues of reparations. Our governor signed a bill that created a reparations task force and that task force uh, spent two years uh, doing uh, meetings around the state, talking to stakeholders, talking to experts. And it culminated this July in the issuance of a 1000 page report from that committee with over 105 recommendations of how reparations should be paid to Blacks who were descendants of slaves in California, even though California was not a slave state, there were slaves and free slaves who moved into California and California, like every state in this nation had its own history of racially discriminatory laws and policies that uh, created barriers for Blacks in terms of wealth generation. Uh, I am very, very, proud of California and, and not just the state. There are many cities in California that have also created reparations task force to study how their city may have contributed to, you know, the uh, what we now see is this enormous wealth gap or the discrimination that Blacks have faced in either housing, education, health care, uh, you know, criminal justice system. And so we are leading. Now, do I think we are there yet, where California is ready and going to act on those 105 recommendations, I would say no. And I would say, Mary, something again has shifted. A lot of what happened, Bruce's Beach included, happened right after George Floyd's murder, in that moment where this country was having this racial reckoning and a lot of white folks in position of power were willing to examine and be you know, reflective and, and be critical in their thought about the way that racism has impacted people of color and particularly black people. That lasted for about six months. There has been another shift. And what we see now is a backlash to many of those corporations and policies that came out of that mass protest movement after George Floyd. So we see states like Florida and Texas going to the opposite extreme, banning books, banning AP Black history courses, uh, you know, creating curriculum around slavery that distorts in the most horrific mm-hmm. way what slavery uh, was like. So there is this backlash that's happening all over the country. In California, I would say it's not exempt from it. So it remains to be seen in this upcoming legislative session, how many, if any of those recommendations by the California reparations task force will be implemented. Uh, So I'm hoping. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What, what, what gives you hope? Because you're right. D diversity, equity, inclusion, they're trying to turn it into a dirty word. So uh, what you say you're hopeful, how so and why? I think
1: I'm wired to be a hopeful person. I think as a rights lawyer, you you have to remain hopeful because otherwise you you wouldn't do this work. And I have seen sea change shifts in policies, not necessarily with Black folks, but I'll use the Me Too movement. Uh, You know, the Me Too movement. I, I spent some of my early years as a lawyer representing women who had been sexually harassed, sexual discrimination, gender discrimination. And I can remember the time when women were afraid to come forward with those claims. So when they did, they suffered grave consequences. We saw, we have seen in this country a sea change shift in the way those kinds of cases are litigated and handled both at the criminal level and at the civil level. And so that gives me encouragement. I've seen states like California, New York, Nevada, open up its statute of limitations to make it possible for women like E. Jean Carroll to sue Donald Trump for sexually assaulting her over 30 years ago. And I've seen a, a jury, a uh, predominantly male jury in Manhattan award E. Jean Carroll $5 million in damages uh, in a case against one of the most powerful white men in this country. So those verdicts, those legislative changes Uh, those grassroots movements, uh, they give me hope that perhaps,
0: (laughs) perhaps. Perhaps, and you say you're an optimistic person and I know you have really taken in the lessons of Charles Ogletree and your own rights activism. I know you advocate for many underserved and overlooked communities, including one that affects you personally. So could you tell us some about the organization you founded that deals with autism awareness and justice?
1: Yes, I started an organization called uh, Special Needs Network, and Special Needs Network is based here in California, and it works. The organization's mission is to work at the intersection of social justice and disability rights. Uh, Oftentimes, again, the disability rights community is, is frequently seen as a white, homogeneous community. And oftentimes when you hear people advocating on behalf of those with disabilities, they are white people. And the reality is there are lots of brown people and black people and people of color who have disabilities and who live at that intersection. Uh, I'm black. I'm disabled. I'm male. I go out into the world and a police encounter could cause me to lose my life. Uh, And I saw a need to address that, to stand in the gap, to provide resources and services and be a voice for those. Because my own son, I have a son, I have three kids, and my son, Marty, was diagnosed with autism at two. And as a Black boy, I realized that Marty was in some ways unlike, you know, he, he was very similar to every other typical Black boy that would have to have the talk and they would have to learn how to navigate a world as a Black boy and then as a Black man. But on top of Marty's Blackness that many police in this country see as a weapon and as a threat, he also is autistic. And that added an additional layer to the harm that could befall him as he navigated the world. And so this organization is, is all about trying to mitigate that harm and make it easier for people of color who have disabilities to live their best lives, uh, have access to the kind of quality education and healthcare that they need to live independently, to have meaningful jobs, not substandard wage jobs, not jobs in work centers and uh, you know jobs that don't value their humanity, but to be able to work and have a living wage job, to live independently, to be contributing members of society And this organization that started in my law firm in a cubicle with uh, my legal secretary, legal assistant as the volunteer, uh, now has close to 300 employees and a eight figure budget and is providing services uh, throughout the state of California and virtually to uh, individuals, you know, in other places throughout the country. And I could not have imagined that what we used to call this little engine that could has become this leading organization in this space. Uh, It it wasn't what I set out to do. I was just trying to educate some parents about their legal rights to get services under some federal and state laws, because as a lawyer, I, I tend to lean into what comes natural. And for me, I'm always looking at what does the law say and how can the law provide some uh, resources or some assistance. But, uh, you know, sometimes you plan and, and God acts. So I'd say I had some plans, but yeah. God I had some other plans. So here we are. And-
0: While this is an issue that I have to tell you is close to me and uh, my heart, I have a nephew, a, a black male uh, who is autistic as well, and his dad. Uh, my, my brother is working on this space as well, and he's a retired judge, but he is working as well. So this is a huge issue because, as you noted, so many of those interactions with authority figures in law enforcement that go wrong, it's because of disabilities, and you know, that's something you are really leaning in. As someone who is, as you say, an activist, you see a problem and you have to go, with it, and you're always looking at the legal piece of it. I'd love your opinion on what you see as some of this country's biggest challenges that all Americans need to face before we can move forward. Because we seem so divided.
1: Oh, so divided, Mary. I think the biggest issue is this gaslighting around the impact, the pervasiveness of racism. Racism is embedded in the institutions of this country. We were starting to acknowledge that and have a conversation about it. And I, I say this all the time, we get right up to the line, I think of having a breakthrough in this country in dealing with race. And then we retreat. We retreat, uh, And that's what happened after George Floyd. And we can't solve what we don't acknowledge in this country because of fear, fear of, you know, the browning of the country, fear of what it would be like if the dominant culture is no longer the dominant culture, creates this illogical response. And all the studies show that biases, whether they're racial biases or gender biases, have huge negative economic impact on our country. Companies would do better if they were more diverse but more diverse means sharing in the pie with folks who are not white, cisgender, I would say Christian males. And that is the biggest, I would say impediment that this country faces. And when you have figures like Donald Trump and others who reinforce a false narrative around race, that there is no racism, that everybody, has access to the same things and if people just work harder, they could, you know, achieve. As long as we are gaslighting our country and residents with that big lie, it's impossible, I think, to move forward. And we can't solve what we won't acknowledge. And as long as we have leaders that are peddling the big lie, i don't we can't get to solution because we're not even trying to solve for the same problem
0: is it a key is there a key to breaking through so we can see as Americans that we really are all in it together
1: i think it's the continued work of civil rights activists other activists we know from dr king and the civil rights pioneers that this thing called justice and you know, liberty and and equality is not something you win in one generation. It's something that you strive for in every generation. And so every generation is called upon to continue the work that was started by our predecessors, our ancestors. So we keep chipping away at it. We keep raising the issue. We don't back down. We don't give in. We don't, allow those that beat the the drum the loudest and tell the lie to win. And, and I think that's what we have in our power to do. And that work is sometimes uh, frustrating and stressful and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's
0: about it work, but it comes down to we, the people. Huh? All yeah, yeah. do it. It's all, all the time. our responsibility. Not
1: just Blacks, not just Latin people, Latinos, Asians. It's everybody's responsibility because we all benefit from it, and then we all suffer as a result when we don't do that work.
0: Well, thank <laughs> yes. you, thank you again, and you'll have to keep us posted on how that Palm Springs case is going as well. So we'll be looking out for that. Thank you again. Thank you. What did you do on your summer vacation? It's a question that has become cliche, but no more. If you were able to take a vacation, congratulations. If your trip of choice was spared fire, flood, or other effects of climate change, you have better luck than many. My summer experiences are still keeping me up at night. Business trips took me close to sites that remembered the civil rights movement, most recently, a trip to the Legacy Museum, and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. Were the exhibits informative about our nation's history? Yes, leading to reflection and sometimes discomfort, but laws that would erase memory would also erase America's chances to do better. That's what's keeping me up at night, and it's the focus of my recent roll call column. Check it out. So, what's keeping you up at night, listeners? And what questions do you have, especially about issues of policy and politics, seen through a lens of social justice? Tweet me at mcurtisnc3. I want to thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.